So the topic today, this whole section, is about God's grace. Um, you know, that word grace, it's a small word. It's good for me because I like small words. Um, but it means so much when it's attached to God's, okay? You know, in daily life, we, we use the word grace to describe simple things like people that, like a ballerina, a very graceful ballerina, simplicity, fluidity, fluidity that's too long a word, fluidity of movement, okay? Um, or that, that grace period that our insurance company gives us when we forget to pay our insurance premium, okay? Or a simple prayer we say before meals sometimes. We call that grace as well, too. Or we may grace someone with our presence. That's maybe thinking a little highly of yourself, but that it's used in that manner as well. Or we can be in graces, okay? Those are kind of the way we use that word and the way we think about it as well, too. But, you know, God's grace is, is just so much more than that. I mean, it's so, here's another word, magnanimous. Okay, Jason would be proud of that word, magnanimous. And so I want to think of the, 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 the biggest word that could describe God's grace. And, and, and the biggest word in English language is that supercatafragilistic expialidocious. And that means, you know, something wonderful and, uh, and great, and that's kind of what it means. But, man, it falls far short of God's grace. Um, so sometimes a more simple definition is better. Shorter words, simpler definition. How about free, unmerited favor with God? Free, unmerited. Free, didn't cost us anything. Unmerited, we sure didn't deserve it. Favor with God or kindness or his mercy, you could say that. And we've all heard that we're saved by grace. I mean, that's the... You know, the cry of the Protestant Reformation is that we, by grace we are saved, as our passage so clearly points out today. Um, and that is certainly uh, the thought of the early church as well. Um, you know, it was, it was always that we were saved by grace. It was never by the works of the law. Um, as you recall, back in, in Acts 15, the, the Jerusalem Council met um, because there was this there was this group of Jews, and what was happening was the Gentiles were now being saved. And so the Jews, there was this group of Jews called the Judaizers who said, well, yeah, they can be saved, but they've got to they've follow the law of Moses, and they've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so the Jerusalem Council met the apostles and, and, uh, to discuss that issue and to pray about it. What does God want? And at the end of that, you know, Peter says this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they. So there's no difference. They don't have to do. They don't have to follow the law of Moses. They don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. It is by grace that they are saved. And then later in Acts, when uh, uh, Apollos, as you recall, was a, a preacher, he was and in Corinth. He was one of the ones that came to Corinth, but. He, um, he was well thought of, and when he was traveling through um, in Acts 18, Luke tells us this about him. He says, and when he, talking about Apollos, wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Okay, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed. So it's through the grace that we even come to a belief 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, none of ourselves. And then Paul, you know, everything about Paul is written by grace because he takes no credit for what he did. And in 1 Corinthians, he states this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You know, thing with Paul, you don't need to start bragging now that you worked hard. But then he qualifies it. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So by the grace of God, Paul was a called sinner to preach the gospel of Christ to the Gentile. And by the grace of God, he gave him the strength and the power to work harder than any of them. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. So we're saved by grace, are we not? So is this grace just this one-time bestowal of grace by God to us in, in our salvation? Or is it a little bit more than that? Or is it something? I think this passage points out that God's grace began before the foundation of the world, way back in eternity past, and extends to eternity future. Okay, it's, it's grace upon grace upon grace. Um, and I think this passage points is that grace is endless. I mean, it's endless with respect to time. It's endless with respect to its power. But what about God's grace? What about God's sovereignty in dispensing this grace to whomsoever he will? What about that? I mean, it's easy. You know, we, 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 like, to think, we like to think of grace. That's kind of an easy thing to make much of okay because it's easy and you know part of the part of the grace that he bestows is a common grace is you know um the things that we take for granted every day um you know the air we breathe the rain that makes the crops grow you know god bestows those on 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 the righteous and the unrighteous as well that's kind of his common grace and that's that's part of his grace but what about his his sovereignty in dispensing his electing grace to those um, what do we think about that? Uh, well, Spurgeon said this about these parts of the gospel. He said, that part of the gospel that people will embrace without persuasion need not be preached so often. I mean, it's easy to think of grace and God's love and things like that, right? But those aspects of the gospel that man kicks and screams at, they must be enforced over and over until his heart may be convinced of the truth of it. And so in our church, we, we, we make much of these. We make much of God's sovereign nature. We make much of his grace that comes only from him, and it's not of us. Um, so it's easy to, to understand God's grace because it's good to us. But what about his dispensing of that grace and who he dispenses it to? Let's go to our passage again here. <clears throat> Start in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay. You know, today in Sunday school, in 2 Corinthians, there's that verse where every other word was he chose, he chose. Speaking of God, God chose, God chose, God chose. Well, before the foundation of the world, he chose. Okay, what did he choose? He chose us. Now, you got to understand who he's talking to here. He's speaking to the believers at the church of Ephesus, those that have already been saved, those that are believers. So he's saying he chose us, referring to himself and the believers, and by proxy us as believers as well, um, in him, in Christ, okay, 
when? Before the foundation of the world. All right, so I hadn't even been born yet. I sure hadn't believed in him yet. But he chose us, and he didn't just choose us that we're going to exist or be born. No, he chose us, what's it going to say, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, the ESV doesn't do that really justice because that word should doesn't mean that that's the way we ought to be uh, or that there's a possibility we'll be that way. Um, you know, the NIV really says it better. He says uh, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us that that is not a possibility that we're going to be holy and blameless in his sight, but that we will be holy and blameless in his sight. So I ask you this, how are you going to be holy and blameless in God's sight? I can only think of two ways. Number one, I live a perfect life and I never sin. Is that going good for anybody here? Not so much. Or I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And then I get his imputed righteousness and he presents me. And now I stand holy and blameless in front of God on that day. So what's he saying here? Again, before the foundation of the world, he chose us believers here that we're going to be holy and blameless. He chose us that we will be saved, that we will be uh, a new creation, that we will be presented holy and blameless. And then he goes to verse 5, in love, that kind of goes with verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Okay, that, people don't like that word predestined. Okay, that's, that's not, not happy to most people, but it's in there, and we have to understand what it means. And it's pretty clear what it means, predestined. It means your, your destination is kind of predetermined. Okay, what's going to happen is, is predetermined. Okay, but who does the predestining? Well, God. He predestined us, again, the same us, believers, okay, as a, for adoption through Jesus Christ. Okay, now, when we become a new creation, Paul explains being adopted son of Jesus Christ. You know, there's only one, there's only one son of God, and uh, that's Jesus Christ. But we're all adopted sons of God through Jesus Christ. And he explains that in Romans 8 very well. Let me just kind of read that to you so we all understand. Romans 8, starting in verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellowship with Christ. So we become adopted sons of God when we are saved, when we become believers. Uh, and in that adoption, son, all the, all the advantages were co-heirs with Christ as well, like Paul, Paul describes here as well. And so why does he do that? Why does, why does God predestine some to be holy and blameless before him and not others? Well, what's the next verse say? According to the purpose of his will. His will. So... So it's not that we willed it to happen, okay? It wasn't anything that we did to earn it or to will it, 
but it's for his purpose, for his purposes. And let me just read a couple other verses to speak to that just so we are clear what, it is, what he's talking about here. <clears throat> In John 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, John says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, and he's talking about of Jewish descent there, because that's what they thought they were children of God, because they were Abraham's descendants, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of anything we can do to earn it, to work our way there, but just to be clear what he's talking about, then he says, but nor of the will of man, nor of our will, uh, but of God, but of God. So if God purposes it and God wills it, um, as he says in 1 Thessalonians, he who calls you will be faithful. He will do it. That's how that, what that verse says. Um, and then Philippians, when he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began the good work will take it to completion. So, you know, I, I knew a friend of mine uh, working with for several years would always, would always use the words, a done deal. Um, it never was a done deal, but, you know, he used that word, it's a done deal. But the difference was he thought it was a done deal because he did it. But when God does it, it is a done deal. Okay, we can bank on it. It will happen. So what you're probably thinking now and what most of us always did think, well, that's not fair. There's just no way. God can't do that. You know, God wouldn't have that people say this. So, so God just plays duck, duck, goose, and, and randomly chooses people to some to be saved and others not, you know, shame on you to say God would do anything random, okay? Now, there's a lot of things God does in the Bible that we read, and we don't understand them, uh, because he tells us the secret things are of God, you know, but the things that he reveals to us belong to us and our children forever. So there are some reasons that we'll never know the answer to. I think we all know that, that there's some things we'll never know the reason to, but this is what he says in his word. He reveals this to us. This is what we have to grasp onto. We have to believe his word that he has written down inerrantly in the Bible. And by the way, you, you don't really want him to be fair, because fair, <laughs> fair, we are all sinners. We are all guilty before a holy God. We all deserve hell. And so fair would be to send everybody to hell. So if he chooses some, he chooses to save some and not others, then what should we do? How should we respond to that? Well, the next verse, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, his glorious grace. Now, you know, Everything I've read so far, there's, there's no prerequisites there to his grace. Uh, there's really nothing that we do in this whole section here. It's all, everything God does as well. Um, there's no merits, no works. There's no mental assent we have to have to, to, to experience his grace. Um, but then he tells us what, what does that mean when he... When, he, when we experience his grace, when he makes us holy and blameless. Well, in verse 7, he says, In him then we have redemption through his blood. So now 
us guilty sinners are redeemed to a holy God through the blood of Christ. That's one advantage. Forgiveness of our trespasses. We, we've all heard that. Where we fail him. And it says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So his grace that he lavishes upon us. Uh, again, what does that mean? We, you know, there's several things. When, when he... When his grace comes upon us, when we come under his grace, what are some things that happen? Well, first of all, like I said earlier, we're, we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We all have um, uh, certainly gone against the law of God, and we stand guilty and condemned. And, and what James says is, you know, if you, just, if, you just, if you just break the law in one area, you're guilty of the whole law. And so... Uh, we're going to be judged on the basis of what we do. And so if that's the way things work, you know, I'm, I almost disagree with Paul when he says he's the chief of sinners. I mean, I think I'm the chief of sinners. You know, if we just have to break it once, we're guilty. You know, I've got nothing to stand on there. Okay. So the wages of sin is death. And so, um, but his grace, but God, those words, but God. In Romans 8, he tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation. The condemnation that we deserve, the guilt that we deserve because of our sins, uh, once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, is no more. That condemnation is lifted. And it's not just, it's not just that God kind of passes over that sin that you've done and that guilt and that debt that you owe him. Uh, it's not that he just kind of winks as you go by and kind of lets him in. No, no, no. It, it, it cost him a price. You know, he, he sent his son, Christ. He sent his son, Christ, for us. And Christ, he laid every sin of every person that would ever believe onto Christ. And Christ's Father God was pleased to crush him for that. But in that... In that, he made atonement with his blood, and only his blood could do that. He made atonement for the sin of everyone who would ever believe. Um, so, therefore, he appeased God's wrath, and Christ died the death we should die so that we can live the life that, that he actually lived. Um, so, if you're under God's grace, that guilt that, that uh, condemnation that we are under, therefore, is now gone and no more. They can't even coexist. God's grace, our guilt, that guilt is, is wiped out as well. So they are mutually exclusive. So Christ paid this debt that we couldn't pay, just like we sang. Jesus paid it all. He paid this debt we couldn't pay. We had no way of paying that. And some people then... In gratitude for that pain of that debt, we'll, we'll work and work and do good things and work in trying to pay that debt back. But I ask you this, is, can you ever pay it back? Okay. Is there anything God, is there anything you have that God needs? Okay. Um, you're right. So that, that they're getting, they're, they mean well, but then it's, it's, it's like that, that that debt that they think they owe God is, that's not grace, okay? That's a debt. That's like a mortgage payment, okay? You get your house, 
but you pay it back little by little by little. That's a, that's a, a debt and reconciliation thing right there. Okay, that's not grace. Grace eliminates debt. Grace eliminates debt. So, <clears throat> so the one thing about the debt that, that we owe, that we cannot pay, yes, we are totally indebted to God for everything, but we are unable to pay it back. Um, but that's what grace is. Grace is so great, it covers that debt, that debt with no need of repaying. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the beauty of grace. If you had to pay it back, it wouldn't be grace. That's what grace means. Uh, we don't have to pay it back. But then you can go the other end of the spectrum and say, well, if, if we don't have to pay it back, I mean, okay, I, you know, if he chose me, um, I can just live the rest of my life how I want to. I don't need to do any good works. You know, and when the time comes, he's going to take me up to heaven. Now, is that right either? That's kind of the other end of that spectrum. Uh, but obviously that's not the case either because what does he say at the very end of our, on verse 2, he says, for we are his workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, he created you. He made you that new creation for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should work in. So the good works that we do now are not in any form or fashion repaying a debt because God's grace has paid that debt, okay? But the works we do now that we're created to do in him now do what? They point to his glory. They point to God. Christ said he will see your, they will see your good works and they will glorify your fathers in heaven. So those good works are just evidence of who you are now and that they glorify the Father in heaven. That's what those works do. And we will do them. So if you're not doing anything, you have to kind of think twice if you consider yourself under God's grace. Um, but we also have to realize that in and of themselves, any works that we do do not merit us any, um, have no merit with God. Even the works we did before we were saved, the works after we were saved, they do not in any form or fashion uh, get us to <clears throat> a higher level of heaven like Chad was saying about some of these religions, where the more you do, you, you're a little bit higher up. Maybe you'll own your own planet someday if you're really good, right? Now, none of these works merit anything. All these works are given to you by God's grace, like Paul did, like Paul said. It's by his grace that I worked harder than any of them. It's his strength, his grace that empowers me and enables me to do works for him. And all these works point to God but they hold no merit before God as well, too. So, so grace eliminates our guilt before a holy God, and um, it, we're totally indebted, but we have no debt, okay? Um, and certainly that grace that we had was unmerited. We didn't do anything to merit that before God. So in chapter 1 here, again, he chooses us to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world um, in eternity past. Okay, now we come to present day. Then what happens? Well, that's eternity past. Then we're born. We're born little sinners. Okay, we're born in sin. And then we grow and we get bigger and we become big sinners. Okay, I mean, it's just, you know, even though maybe God chose us before, that's the lot of mankind. That is what we're born into, our sinful nature. 
So now in chapter 2, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, okay, this, this is kind of what you were, and this is what you're going to be, and this is kind of how it happened. So now he goes into kind of real, it's, it's past tense because it happened, this is, verse 1 here will be uh, from the time we're born till the time we're redeemed. And this is how Paul describes it. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, dead, in which you once walked. Dead. Dead means dead. And he's not speaking about living, you know, your physical death, okay? He's speaking about your spiritual death, that you are dead spiritually to God. You may be alive, and well, you are alive and walking around, but spiritually you're dead. Um, and you're dead to the things of God. Like he says in 1 Corinthians 2, which we'll probably get to in the next couple of weeks, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That is your lot. You do not accept them, but not just because you don't accept them, because he goes on to say then, uh, and he is not able to understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. So our lot is a human being when we are first born, is our sin nature. We think of the cross of Christ as folly, because we are unable to understand that. Okay, we're dead. Um, and, it, and it's interesting, he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not dead because of our trespasses and sins, but our sin nature causes us to sin. And so we're, we are spiritually dead. We're at enmity with God. We're children of wrath because our nature that we're born with um, has that. <clears throat> so, so if we're dead, spiritually to God, uh, but we're still alive, walking on this earth, okay, it's, it's kind of like, and I hate to make this analogy, because, but it's a great analogy, we're zombies. It's just like Chris Law y'all said, we're, we're zombies. We're, we're alive and walking around, but we're dead. We're dead spiritually to God. And so I don't know that much about zombies for some of you that maybe have watched zombie movies. Can that zombie do anything to make him alive again? I don't know. Can he? I mean, I, I think it requires a kind of a supernatural work or a vaccine or something that maybe will make him not undead or not dead or how, wherever he is. But, he, but I guess the point I'm making is is that's kind of what we are. We're unable to come to God. We are dead. And a dead person can't do anything. It requires something outside of him to make a change. Um, so we're dead. And when he goes on and he describes that condition even more. He says, uh, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that refers to Satan, uh, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's an interesting way of uh, describing um, lost people, okay? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So that's what we are. We are, we are we are not victims of this world. We are part of this world. We are part of Satan who has dominion over this world. Our nature wants to be with the world. Our, we do what we want to do, and what we want to do 
It's kind of what the world wants to do. That's our nature, our sin nature. Our world doesn't want to, I mean, our nature doesn't want to follow the things of God because we're dead to that. It's folly to us. We can't understand it, okay? Um, so we're described as sons of disobedience. We disobey the things of God as well. We're children of wrath. We're under God's wrath and condemnation. That is our lot from the day we're born until the day we're redeemed. Um, because we want what we want. We want the things of this world. The things of this world are the things that Satan places in the world order. So, and what I like what it says at the end of verse 3 or uh, verse 4 or verse 3, like the rest of mankind. So before, even though we're chosen before the beginning of the, before the foundation of the world, when we're born, now we're outside of God. We're, st we're under God's wrath and God's condemnation like every other person that's born on this earth, like the rest of mankind. So you were no different. You were no different than the rest of mankind, which is awesome. So really our condition is helpless. I mean, there's nothing we can do for it because we're dead, okay? Or we're zombies. I guess we're alive but dead. Um, there's nothing we can do to change that. Um, verse 4, but God... But God, I love that, that word, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So that, that's awesome. By grace, you have been saved. He is the active agent. He, when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. He did it. He didn't say... You need to do this, this, and this. You know, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. You know, there's nothing you can do to do that. He makes you alive together with Christ. And then what I love what he says in verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, that hasn't really happened yet. We haven't been raised with him, and we're not sitting with Christ Jesus yet, but, but this, this thing is written in the past tense. And what I love about that is it's like it's already happened. I mean, it's a sure thing. It's a done deal. You know, we're going to be raised. We will be raised with him one day. And then the purpose of that, verse 7, he says, so that in the coming ages, now you have to ask that when, when's the coming ages? Is that next week? Yeah, I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago. Okay, is that, was that maybe 1,000 years ago or is it? You know, next year, uh, well, no, this, this kind of read on explains in the coming ages, um, lost my place, uh, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the coming ages begin when you're saved. And from there on, he is going to show you his immeasurable grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace which is immeasurable. Like I said, it's, it's, his grace is endless in power. Can't measure it more than you can imagine um, in Christ Jesus because of what Christ has done for us. So, so God's grace, God's sovereignty chooses, God's grace effectually redeems us as well and just in case we didn't quite get it the first time, 
when he says, by grace you have been saved up there in verse 5. In verse 8, he says this one more time. For by grace you have been saved. And he explains it a little bit more. Through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not the result of work, so no man may boast. So he kind of gives us a reason. You know, which had at the end of Corinthians, if you're going to boast, you're going to boast in the Lord. But if we did anything, if we had any say-so in our salvation, if we merited it by doing something or, you know, doing a good work, being nice to someone, praying to God, just desiring to do that, if it, if it was anything that was within us, then we, had a, we have a right to boast, do we not? But God, he kind of, he puts that to rest. There, it's, it's not you. It's not you. It's nothing you can do. It's nothing you can say. It wasn't your will. It was God's will. Um, it's all by grace. And so, if God does it all, okay, um, and everything, everything that we are in Christ, all our debts being paid, all our guilt being alleviated, our guilt before a holy God, um, all our obligation to pay those debts back, we don't have that because it's grace. Um, you know, we have nothing we can pay him back with. So, so what do we do? I mean, it, it's all him. Well, number one, you can thank him. Okay, that would be a good place to start and have gratitude. But then he, he kind of finishes up in verse 10 um, by saying this, for we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship is more along the lines of a masterpiece. Okay, we are his masterpiece. And what are we created to do? Creating Christ Jesus for good works. So what we do is we, we give our life to him. Okay, we, we become a living sacrifice. We, we, we give our life to him. And he will then empower us to do these works that he prepared for us beforehand. So it's not just a matter of, you know, kind of sitting back and, you know, okay, I'm chosen. You know, I'm good. I don't need to do anything from here on out. That's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible teaches us that if you are one of those chosen, you know, you will. You will perform good works. Um, I'll kind of finish this up by, by I read a, a sermon by Spurgeon um, the other day, and it's entitled Rules of Grace which seems kind of a contradiction of term. I mean, grace is free. We don't merit it. We didn't earn it. But so, so what's he talking about rules of grace? Well, what he, what he really means is that, that God, although he can dispense that grace to whomsoever he wills, because he's God, okay, there, he uses certain means by doing that he, he, in, in, in saving people. And those means are, and we know them well, you must hear the gospel message. You must take heed to that gospel message as well. You know, man cannot be saved if he has not, not heard about Jesus Christ. So that's why we evangelize. That's God's means to save people. But when heeding that word of Christ or heeding that gospel message, then we have to be humbled. We have to be humbled to the point where we realize that, that we got nothing to offer him. You know, not our our church attendance, not our tithes, not our, our good works. Nothing we've done holds any merit to God. 
So we have to humble that we ourselves are totally helpless and humble ourselves before God. Because if we're relying on anything that we've done, we're just like that Pharisee in, in, in the parable about the tax collector and the Pharisee. You know, they both are praying. The Pharisee says, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty good, God. I've done all these things. I tithe and so-and-so. And, and then the tax, payer, the, the tax collector says what? He says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's, what, that's how you should be humbled. And that's the way God saves. He humbles us to the point where we have to cry out, have mercy on me. So let's pray.